Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Wen Ming Yi. I'm a solutions architect at the Amazon AWS Web Services. And here I also have Miro Enough from NVIDIA, who is also a solution architect. And uh, Miro, you'd like to uh, maybe introduce about some of the things that we've worked uh, together? Yeah, absolutely. So we've had the opportunity to collaborate on multiple projects, including numerous training sessions at Amazon focusing on machine learning and deep learning. Deep learning yeah. yeah, and today we'll be talking about our latest collaboration focused around uh, the unique challenge that the new biosphere buildings in Seattle are presenting to the horticulturalists who work there. Yep. So our agenda for today. Yeah. So first of all, we'll do an introduction and we'll show you a video of the Amazon Spheres. If you haven't been to um, our new building, um, I definitely uh, would encourage you to uh, um, uh, stop by when uh, you're visiting Seattle. It's one of the uh, new attractions of uh, uh, Seattle. Um, and then uh, the second uh, part we're going to uh, go, go into is the, uh, a, a new approach of which we are using the state-of-the-art deep learning methodologies to uh, look at um, and ana analyze some of the more complex data streams that's coming uh, from the sensors, hundreds of sensors of the building. Um, and finally, we're actually going to look at the uh, uh, architectural design uh, from the systems perspective. So there's really two architecture we're going to be talking about. One is the deep learning architecture, and the second is the actual systems architecture in the cloud. Um, and finally, we would like to uh, uh, tell you a little bit more about the uh, results. Um, which was actually quite impressive. Um, and since it's a very adaptive solution, it's able to filter, filter out a tremendous amount of false positives. Um, and uh, finally, we'll talk more about uh, the future work we're going to be doing, um, essentially involving um, a lot of multi-spectrum cameras to look at uh, uh, issues with some of the plants and the long-term effects of having plants in a, in a, uh, in a glass do, uh, dome um, that actually filters out a lot of the infrared. That's right, that's oh, right. Yeah. So why don't we start with a Where's quick the video, video right? here and uh, let's see if uh, we can make this work. Let's try. A living wall is a marriage between technology and horticulture. It's a way of growing plants that are adapted to an epiphytic lifestyle on a vertical surface. That's quite a visual impact when you're walking into the space. We're in an off-site facility that we are using to pre-grow all of the living wall panels that will be installed in the Spheres installation. This is generally the size of the plant material that we're starting with, and it's as easy as stretching the material out and situating the plant there. We do have a really pretty impressive diversity, around 200 different species of plants, and we used about 25,000 individual plants to start for the living walls. It's a way of really kind of packing in the biodiversity and just the overall photosynthesis that's happening in the space. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. All right, awesome. So actually, the level of biodiversity has only gone up since then. Uh, yeah. So now they're up to 700 unique species and a total of 40,000 40, plants over the And we're actually the increasing on the number of plants. And they actually, what they're doing is, uh, you saw the video earlier, we have an off-site uh, uh, greenhouse, which we actually rotate plants um, into the biospheres. And depending on the season, and also depends on the 
uh, type of plants. That's right. That we That's have. right. Yeah. Yeah. And so really, our motivation here is to help these guys, uh, Ben and Claire, who have become our, our good yeah. friends. And you know, they have to take care of all of these plants. And it's a real challenge for them because, you know, as Wenming was saying, we're looking at over 189 sensors that are instrumented, and there's probably more than 300 in the building. Yeah. Um, and you know, these folks care about them deeply. They go around and do rounds in different little zones of the building. Uh, where they're monitoring with their logbooks all of the different uh, plant flora species. And, uh, you know, I mean, they have poured their, their love and life into this. I think Ben has tried over, like, I don't know, how many different types of materials before he yeah. found one that works for the living um, wall. If you look at the image on the right, uh, these are actually the nylon materials that they use. So essentially, in a living wall, um, we spray water onto the uh, uh, wall and the absorbent material actually is able to distribute them evenly throughout the wall so that the plants actually get uh, you know even growth nutrition so they're not, they're not going to be drawn or they're not going to have any harm. Um, when we uh, met Ben for the very first time he was telling us about these stories and it was super inspiring. Um, he said he tried 400 different types of <laughs> materials. Don't give away um, secrets. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a really impressive achievement what they've accomplished and uh, it seems to really bring a lot of joy to people you know, who enter the building. It, it almost puts you into a, you know, the climate of Costa Rica while outside it might be just you know, crappy Seattle. Yeah. Um, especially when it's win winter time. If you have a cough and I walk into the building by the end of the day, <laughs> it's cleared up. It clears up. Um, so maybe we can start. Yeah. By so, so just to really quickly talk about uh, the sensors. Yeah, just talk through some of the sensor streams that we're, we're tapping into. And we're actually working with um, some folks who are doing uh, industrial b building maintenance and uh, instrumentation. And they have provided us with a site, uh, site survey tool that allows us to capture these sensor streams. And so here what you see is just a histogram of the different types of sensors that we have access to. So the number of, right? Yeah, and, and the number within yeah. each category. So you notice temperature sensors, humidity sensors, light level sensors, uh, electricity demand, dew point, accumulated light, and CO2. And so uh, these are all different forms of sensing that are happening within the building. And as you can imagine, if you're one of these horticulturalists, it's really difficult to stay on top of all of these signals to figure out what it means. So typically, they kind of just ignore them all together, and, and for this and for other reasons as well. I think the main thing is about the false positives. Yeah. So if you have sensors that essentially keep sending you lots of messages, just like if you know, I've received lots of emails about things that are not actionable. Right. But I think the main thing is that you want to be able to receive signals which the uh, caretakers can actually take action upon. That's right, that's yeah. right. So that's really the key. That's right, yeah. absolutely. And so just to give you guys a, a little bit of a sense of what these signals look like, here are, are some temperature sensors. The first plot on the top showing a single floor and then uh, the plot below showing a different floor and then the plot at the very bottom combining them together. Uh, here you see CO2, and you can see that they have very different characteristics. Yeah. And here is uh, instantaneous light levels that are being captured by the, the building. Yeah, just for the audiences that are curious, you want to talk about some of the spikes in the data in the background there? Sure, sure. Uh, so those spikes are uh, triggered by multiple things. Uh, the building itself is trying to calibrate the total amount of light that's being consumed. And so it tries to integrate over these instantaneous light levels and figure out you know, how much light is being carried into the building, both from our lighting system and from external things like the sun. 
And so whenever the cumulative amount of light for a particular day drops below the level that is required, the following day, the building will controllably try to increase its light output to, to try to make up for that. Yeah, so we essentially have a set of artificial lights that are controlled by these uh, uh, sensors. Right, in addition yeah. to the ambient lighting that's, that's right. coming into the that's building. Right. That's right. Especially, um, it's actually difficult to do just because uh, there's cloud covers, there's uh, amount of sunlight, and also seasonality. So we that's have right. a lot of, uh, uh, we have very little uh, daylight in Seattle, probably about <laughs> only seven hours around this time of the year. So yeah. there's a lot of compensation you have to do. That's right, that's um, right. And we can talk more about uh, uh, complexity that goes even further because we don't have infrared lights. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so Actually, our, ultraviolet. I'm sorry, it's not. Yeah, oh right, right. Ultraviolet. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So just to sort of recap, um, you know, all of these sensor streams are coming in, and at this point, they're being orchestrated by this building management system, which allows you to sort of set various thresholds and set points if you wanted to build alerts for yourself and for the different levels and activations of, this, of the sensors here. But as you can see, there's so many complex data streams that it's really difficult to come up with any kind of heuristic way of putting together some sensible boundaries or fences around logical behavior. Uh, you've got you know, hundreds of sensors to manage. And in practice, what we end up seeing, uh, and you know, apologies for the small font here, but uh, this, these are some suspicious values highlighted in purple over a timeline that are being generated by the existing system. And as you can see, one of the sensors has suspicious values for the entire duration of the day, and the other sensor has multiple spots of suspicious activity. And when you actually look at the data coming during this time, uh, it turns out that you know one of these sensors was just improperly configured, and the other mm -hmm. one, I think, was just being like obscured by yeah. a leaf. Yeah, once again, a lot there's 100 uh, 96 that we can actually have access to. Um, just imagine if you know one of them goes down every day and you try to investigate that. There's really a lot of work. It's almost like a full-time job uh, for a ma building maintenance person. And um, humans generally, when they see these repetitive false positives, uh, positives that right. don't have a lot of actionable values, they tend to ignore them. Oh, yeah. So the relationship between the, the humans and the system um, kind of grows apart after you, uh, um, you know, lose don't, trust. Yeah, you, you actually lose trust of the system. That's right. So what our new approach does is it actually gains trust with the caretaker. Yeah. And what you, That's what right. Show, yeah. That's right. Because it's adaptive. That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, basically as a result of, of the, the way that the system is currently uh, orchestrated, it has lost the trust of the caretakers. And so these are a couple of examples of what you might consider, you know, real instances that alerting should be happening. Um, but they were essentially uh, ignored just because, you know, the caretakers have built up a resistance to these false positives. And so the first occurred when uh, the uh, Alexa microwave integration uh, product launch occurred, and that was at a time when the, the building operators requested that they change the temperature conditions on the highest fourth level of the building so that you know the media who's coming in can be a little bit cooler and also I think they changed the air velocity uh, so you know that those were settings that were uh, fine to change temporarily but it turns out yeah. no one set them back to their original set points and so that was a problem yeah what's what's interesting is that we actually found this through the data without actually knowing which day it was what we did is actually we used our new method to look through the data set and we found an anomaly and then we talked to Ben and then uh, Ben basically told, yeah, that's right, I remember that. That was 
um, essentially September 20th, when uh, the uh, Alexa product was being launched, new, new Alexa products were being launched. That's right, that's right. And the, the other one uh, was when, I guess, uh, building automation staff were coming in to try to do new sensor integration, and they suspended the irrigation for the living wall, uh, which apparently was not even a critical thing to do. They probably could have done their work without doing that. Right. Uh, but uh, it turns out no one, again, remembered to uh, turn the water back on, and so the plants basically went thirsty for 24 hours, which yeah. isn't the end of the, day of the world, but, you know, it's not a good thing either yeah. when you're trying to maintain all these crazy species. Exactly. Um, yeah, and so essentially our approach to this problem, uh, now that we've sort of covered the challenges, is to try to bring best practices from modern AI to this. That's right. Um, so I, I would say, you know, for our audience here, which is an architectural track, so I think a lot of, a lot of folks are actually new to machine learning and deep learning. So our, our particular session is really aimed to help you understand what's coming next which is how AI is going to change how IoT systems will operate, for one, and how you can actually save money and also um, build a really good relationship between the users of your product. It's really about the user experience. Exactly. Uh, but at the same time, we also need to look at um, the hardware and also how the software is being deployed. How do we train the model? How do we deploy the model? This is essentially what um, our you know, session is really um, aimed to uh, achieve. Um, if you don't necessarily understand the deep learning, um, you know, the, 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 the details of deep learning, uh, don't worry about it. We'll actually have other sessions which, which we will go into a lot more details of that. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah, so I think the first thing that I want to point out is that um, we talked about the losing trust uh, with the traditional system, which are essentially threshold-based or rule-based. Um, the new methodology of using deep learning, it's adaptive. The system is adaptive so that it cuts down the uh, false alarm rate dramatically. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening is that you know, Ben and Claire um, are, when a signal is generated, they'll look into it and they go, hey, what is actually wrong? So they're right. actually more motivated That's to right. investigate. That's right, they have their curiosity back. That's yeah. right, the curiosity yeah. is really what's That's right. helping. Um, and also there's, um, you know, a lot of these systems can be real time and you know very low cost if you implement them correctly. That's right. That's right. And we'll try um, to give you guys yeah. a little bit of perspective yeah. on that as well. Yeah. We, can we can talk about how we balance the cost by you know moving the inference into some of it in the cloud, and maybe some of the inference could actually be an I IoT edge devices, which you would actually be putting them inside the building. Mm -hmm. And finally, it's uh, it's also about scalability. So. We're talking about a few hundred sensors here. So there are, let's just say imagine five years from now, so a lot of the buildings will have a lot more sensors. Right. Probably thousands and thousands. Mm -hmm. um, so the deep learning architecture we are talking about here is very scalable, but we also want um, folks to understand what are the options that you can minimize the cost. That's right, that's yep. right. Okay, so with that, let's talk a little bit about uh, deep, learning. Know, deep learning yeah, and, and why we're choosing this approach. So uh, for folks who haven't you know, looked at this uh, before, it's just a, a high-level explanation that just is meant to say that uh, artificial intelligence is sort of the broadest context and it's meant to capture you know, human-level intelligence across multiple tasks and multiple domains. We're very far from that, I think we can all agree. Yep. Uh, machine learning is just sort of the subdomain where we're trying to develop algorithms that can improve themselves and learn from data. Yep. And one of those types of algorithms uh, within machine learning happens to be deep learning, which is 
the one that is inspired by uh, neuro neuroscience. Yeah, 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 and that's yeah. the the purple circle here. Yeah. These are the different schools of thought or different machine learning tribes and how folks have thought about you know how to solve these problems. If we were to compare the existing method that sort of lives in the uh, the building automation system today would fall probably under the symbolist uh, branch, which is yeah. where rule-based systems and some of the earliest you know computer yeah. scientists where they were building you know logic-based systems. Yeah. That's probably where this would fall under. Um, and it's a fine approach if you you know spend all of your time just looking at these numbers and trying to use your brain as the adaptive mechanism by which you continually set new thresholds. But from the perspective of a human having to deal with this many sensor streams, that's more than a full-time job. Exactly. Um, so you know we're not really going to step too too much farther into these different various approaches. But just sort of for your interest, if you're curious yeah. about this farther, uh, check out uh, the the master algorithm, which is a book by Pedro Domingos, which does a great job of covering and highlighting the the pros and cons of all of these different ideas. And you know it's not to say that deep learning is the end-all, be-all solution to machine learning or AI. It just happens to be probably one of the best methods that we've seen up to yeah. date at absorbing learning at really high scales. So in this plot, essentially what you're seeing is that many of the traditional approaches, uh, as the data set, set size increases on the x-axis, they, they learn and they learn, but they sort of get saturated after a while. Yeah. And then with deep learning, it doesn't really make sense to start building these large neural network fabrics until you have a lot of data. But we don't have that problem. We have tons of data. That's right, especially for IoT, where you generate tons and tons of data. So we're Having more data is actually a good problem That's to, right. That's to, right. to have. Um, part of it is also that deep neural nets are able to capture much more complex models. Exactly. Because right. some of the models that uh, you know we built for machine vision have um, hundreds of millions of parameters. Right. Right. Instead of just you know a few parameters That's of right. the traditional right. methods. And also, yeah. all of these parameters are sort of woven together. Exactly. Unlike something like maybe like a decision forest uh, made up of decision trees. Uh, or a random forest or a gradient boosting me mechanism where the trees don't really talk to each other. Um, and so... It's a network. This is, yeah, this is like a, a, a very, uh, you know, powerful paradigm. Uh, we're just starting to understand why they work so well, but empirically we're observing that yeah. they do great. Uh, it doesn't hurt also that it's inside of our brains and it's kind of like a proven That's proof right. point, right? And one of the difficult part of deep learning that you know we're still doing a lot of research on is the fact it's not as interpretable. Mm. So for example, decision trees we talked about here, right. but you know which branch is going through. We know how the machines actually make those decisions. That's why um, that you know when we when the system detects a signal, that signal would have to be explained somehow by a human. It can be difficult by looking through the system. However, with the human experts, they would be able to explain it to you. That's right, that's right. Yeah, so uh, there are definitely pros and cons, yeah. but I think one of the, the advantages is, is the level of performance that you can yeah. get out of this. And that's kind of really what we're hoping to do, both the level of performance, the ability to capture data at really large scales, and to sort of become adaptive, to sort of keep learning and relearning, uh, and to sort of stay ahead of uh, all of all of the system behaviors. Yeah. So the specific type of neural network architecture we're going to be using for this problem of anomaly detection, uh, or basically finding surprising things in the data, is known as an autoencoder. And it's just pictured here. And what you can see is that uh, on the left-hand side is our input to this architecture. And in our context, an input here is going to be time series data coming from all of these sensor streams. Mm -hmm. So you can think of each one of these neurons as receiving a single timestamp uh, of a particular yeah. sensor data point. And as you can see from this architecture, the data flows from the left to the right. 
And so the input comes in on the left, and it's sort of forcibly compressed into its narrowest uh, stage, which is known as the bottleneck, where the data has to sort of become condensed and summarized. And from that representation, it gets, again, sort of decompressed through the decoding stage yeah. and gets you know, reverted back to its original full dimensionality reconstruction. And the objective of this network during its learning is to allow all of this data to stream through that's being generated by the sensor streams and to get really good at having to summarize and compress the data, but then reconstruct it. And so it's trying to minimize the difference between the input and its reconstructed output. Yeah, I think part of it is also uh, the fact that uh, we want to show people who haven't seen the neural net bef before is that there is a lot of connectivities between mm -hmm. the neurons, right. and they all inference each other to capture that very complex, uh, uh, I would say, complex mathematical relationships between all the variables. Absolutely. And we'll show see the examples uh, right after. Maybe That's right. okay. Yep, yep. We'll and so. Uh, Specifically, to sort of make this problem presentable to the network, we have to take you know, these time series data sets that are coming from various sensors and uh, present them as fixed size inputs because the network architecture is fixed once we decide on a particular yeah. input uh, dimensionality. Yeah, essentially, that's the size of your input. So that's in, right. That's what the network's yeah. looking at to determine whether or not there's something surprising. That's right. And we were using a sliding window way, which we're moving. So the data frames that we have, the um, the smallest unit of time is 15 minutes. That's right. Um, so essentially, think imagine it as a sliding window that moves from left to right at 15 minute intervals. Mm -hmm. That's each, right. And that's right. Uh, until it finishes sweeping the uh, entire data set. That's right. Uh, so that's essentially the the training. That's right. So yeah. from this is a single sensor and yeah. in in our you know models we use many sensors at the same time but this same idea holds is that you essentially want to slide this window around moving one sample at a time so it has high redundancy with its previous you know uh, yeah. member but you also generate a lot of training examples for the network to see. And so as you build this architecture and you present it with tons of these data elements, you are now entering a place where you know, neural networks become happy because they have tons of things to yeah. look at. But as you can see, there's a lot of computation that's going to be required um, in, these, uh, in, in deep neural uh, networks. Um, there's a lot of node neurons that are part of the network, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of mathematical propagation and calculation that has to happen throughout that complex network. That's right, that's right, yeah, yeah. so tons of opportunities. Yeah. Um, but so just to sort of close the loop on preparing the data uh, so that it can be ingested by these models, we have to do you know all kinds of fun things like data wrangling yeah. to make sure that we account for missing data, make sure that everything is re-indexed so that all of the time sensors are being presented to the architecture with 15-minute sampling rate, even though they may not actually have that as their inherent sampling rate. Um, we have to do normalization within the sensor types. Uh, and then another interesting thing that we discovered was that if you look at this cross-correlational matrix, which is, I, I realize, probably a lot to take in from a, a single slide, <laughs> but just sort of look at the sort of shapes that you see. Uh, each one of these dots in these matrix is representative of the strength of the relationship between uh, two pairs of sensors. So, for example, the first row represents the strength of the correlation between the CO2, the first CO2 sensor, and all the other sensors in the, yeah. in the, that we're presenting in this sample. And so here you can see that CO2 is highly correlated with other CO2 sensors. It's highly correlated with temperature and dew point and a little bit with uh, instantaneous light sensors and also the hourly index. Uh, and interestingly, it turns out that the behavior of correlation or sort of the relationships that we see between these sensors is different 
in the weekdays than in the weekends. And primarily that seems to be because in the weekdays there's a lot more people present. Uh, you know, a lot more folks from Amazon are coming in to take yeah. a break and, and, yeah. and meet their friends. And so the CO2 activity actually ends up being much more yeah. correlated with other parts of the uh, activity graph. And so for this reason, we decided to focus our first sort of model building research just on weekdays. Weekdays. And also uh, on the weekends, it's actually closed. Um, so did, I think they're open on every like third Saturday every, of the public yeah, that's or right. something. It yeah. opens once a month to the public. Right. And of course, you can uh, find uh, an Amazon employee that can take you uh, to the spheres during the day. That's uh, right. That's any, right. any day during the week. Yeah. But I think from the perspective of the, of the caretakers too, the daily activity is probably the thing yeah, that the, where exactly. the most of the anomalies are likely to happen anyway. Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, Ben has talked to us about is that on the weekends, if a sensor creates an alarm, he actually has to go in. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and fix That's it. That's right. Yeah. So we'll, we'll also build yeah. models for the weekend. Yeah. That, that shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, w this is just another sort of uh, way to, to visualize and think about this data. So again, just to recap, we're chopping up all of these pieces of data coming through the, the sensor streams and presenting them to the network. Uh, in uh, the sliding window format. And what the network is doing is it's ingesting, and this is just a single sensor example, in the next slide we'll see a multi-sensor example. But it's ingesting this data, it's you know processing it, forcing it through its compressed layer, and then uh, reconstructing it. And this is its reconstruction here at the top. And again, remember, we want the reconstruction after training to be as close as possible to the original. And here we're showing how those two things overlap. And the idea is that you know, it's not a perfect match. And there's going to be reconstruction error, which is essentially the gaps between these two uh, time series. And what the network is trying to do is minimize that reconstruction error. But we're going to use that reconstruction error as a proxy to outliers. Essentially, any time that the amount of reconstruction gets really high, the network can't explain the behavior that's happening right, right now. And that's like a, a red flag that will get triggered. And yeah. we'll use, you know, the past sort of uh, reconstruction errors from a really long time window and build statistics on the reconstruction error. So we know what the usual reconstruction error is, and it, we also know its variation and standard deviation. And based off of those statistics, any time that the reconstruction error gets several standard deviations away from its normal behavior, that's when we start to really care. And that's when we start to potentially consider an opportunity to escalate to these horticulturalists. Yeah. So in essence, um, to kind of summarize in a more um, you know, general term, which is, um, if I were to, as a human, to look at data, so I would look through, um, you know, maybe the, uh, historical data from la last year or so. Mm -hmm. um, I've trained myself on a more compressed model, uh, meaning that I know there's a few things that I care about when I see as an anomaly, because I can't remember all of the data. So just somehow in my head, there's this model. When I see this, there's, you know, that's called right. uh, uh, my experience, right? That's so right, I compress right. my experience. And when I see that, um, uh, when you put new data through me, uh, through the model, <laughs> or through me, um, I'll look at it and go, hey, you know, it kind of looks, eh, it looks about normal mm -hmm. because I see certain features. Essentially, that's what the autoencoder is doing. It's, um, so if you look at the middle layer where you have the bottleneck, mm -hmm. that's where it's really summarizing that's right. and saying, hey, those are the most important features that's right, that I that's look right. at. So for in this yeah. example, oh, I'm seeing a little bit of yeah. maybe early afternoon yeah, traffic yeah. and a little bit of late that's afternoon normal. like cloudiness or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So it's having to figure out a condensed representation that's of right. uh, an entire day. Uh, and then from that condensed re representation, be able to re-explain everything back against exactly. the original dimensionality. Yeah. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, we, we've been sort of hoping to give you guys a little bit of an intuition about how these architectures work. 
uh, to take this a slight level farther, and uh, we promise this is the most we'll get involved in yeah. uh, modeling deep, deep learning for you today, be, this being an architectural uh, talk. Yeah. Uh, but here is just a demonstration of how you go from single sensor uh, autoencoders to, to multi-sensor yeah. autoencoders, yeah. and that's in, in fact what we're mm -hmm. working with. And essentially all you do, and it's not very complicated, is you just take the sensor streams and you sort of append them to each other or concatenate them and yeah. make one really long input to the architecture. And then on the other side, you expect the reconstruction to sort of map to those same coordinates. Exactly. So in here, if you, we can show this as an example. So if there are, let's just say, uh, 10 different sensors coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, so your input would essentially be, uh, let's say, 96 data points from the same uh, same sensor, so mm -hmm. our sensors fire off every 15 minutes. Right. We multiply that by 24, that's 96. Right, per day. So that would be um, the first, 96 90, first, first 96 cells as input. And then the would next be sensor. From one sensor, yeah. Uh, then you append the next sensor, which is also 96 sensor. That's right. So we end up having about 2,400. That's right. Or so. Um, uh, sensors per yeah, zone. Se yeah, sensors that's per right. zone. And we're getting to yeah. the zones here in a second. That's right. But yeah, this is, this is just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, we just append the sensors to each other, yeah. and that same the same mapping is retained on the yeah. output side. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you look inside the spheres, there's uh, these tons and tons of sensors. Um, how can we actually, uh, you know, break them up into some reasonable, uh, understandable format? Yeah. Um, so essentially, th our, the approach that we took is to look at different zones of the biospheres. And so we were working with some of the building automation guys and they were kind enough to share blueprints that uh, show us both you know, the different regions as well as all of the different sensors that live there. So we now finally had a mapping of all the data streams we were reading to actually something that's physically grounded in the building. Um, so and we end up having four? Yeah, that's so it. we chose four, yeah, four we zones, chose and four, we'll yeah. show them in here in yeah. a second, but uh, you know, this is how it sort of came about. There's many possible ways to, to slice and dice this, but I think the, the four that we chose are sort of vetted by the horticulturalists, so, yeah. so that's a meaningful thing. And just to, to speak briefly about the sensor, sensors that are in here, so for example, if we look at just the, the North Conservatory, which is you know, uh, this region in the, on the first floor in this mm -hmm. uh, outermost shell, I guess, yeah. um, you notice that there are these AC sensors, uh, and there's four of them in the North Conservatory. And if you were to try to find them physically in the building, you would have to sort of look really carefully because they're kind of hidden amongst the foliage and the sort of the, the yeah. tree bark. And here what you see is this little wire mesh with a tube attached to it. And the tube is actually pulling in air uh, all the way down to the basement of the building where there's this air acuity sensor that actually looks at all of the air coming through and is able to pull out you know, CO2 levels, yeah. Uh, dew point, temperature, relative humidity, all of these pretty complicated chemical processes. Yeah, essentially the sensor is concentrated into a, in a box, mm -hmm. in a basement. That's right. Um, and the way you think about it is that it's almost like having uh, uh, tubes that are extended to different areas That's of right. the building That's right. that sucks in the air mm -hmm. and samples them exactly. through that system. It's yeah. like you have yeah. you know, an elef elephant, elephant right. trunk and it's bringing it to yeah. the brain. Yeah. That's right. And so we also have uh, quite a few of these instantaneous uh, light sensors that are distributed uh, in, in the building. And so uh, those are the ones that are labeled DLI, which I haven't highlighted here, but they look something like this on the right-hand side. Yeah. And so you know, we're basically getting, uh, I would say, five different types of uh, data reliably from all these zones. CO2, relative humidity, dew point, temperature, and instantaneous light. Yeah. Um, and so here, if you know, uh, now that we're have kind of had a chance to, to think through some of this stuff and met again with the caretakers, 
we decided to chop things up into these following zones. So there's the, in yeah. blue here is the North Conservatory, the one we just talked about. On the other hand side on the next floor is the South Conservatory. And then running a, like along all four levels of the building is the living wall, which is shown here in yeah. uh, green. And so these are actually the blueprints of all the different floors going from left to right, one, two, three, four. And then the, the fourth zone is this canopy, which sort of uh, is on the right-hand side and it stretches over three floors and it captures uh, this really large tree that's sort of uh, yeah. one of the centerpieces of the building. It's a ficus tree. That's right, that's right. <laughs> it's really big, yeah. Yeah. And we actually ran into some uh, problems with uh, insects and we can talk about in yeah. our future work that's what right. we're gonna use spectrometers. That's right. Um, okay. Yeah, so, so, so anyways, we, now that we sort of selected these zones as meaningful ways uh, to potentially target anomaly detection, this will help with the interpretability problem yeah. because now uh, what we end up doing is we end up having models that are trained by sensor type within each of these zones so that if you get an alert, hopefully very rarely, as the caretaker, you would know where it's where located it right. and you would know what type of sensor is causing it. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the motivation behind this sort of geographical uh, splitting of, of the model. Of the model yeah. yeah. So a lot of times if you look at uh, building machine learning models, the first thing is we always do is to really uh, go talk to um, the customers and really figure out what is the uh, business problem, what kind of problems they have, and what do we actually have in terms of the uh, sensors that, I mean, IoT is, you know, largely based on the kind of sensors we have. Absolutely. And, you know, whether we need to get additional ones. That's right, that's right. And it turns out, actually, that there's a bunch more sensors in here that aren't hooked up to the system, but yeah. hopefully because of this project, we can get them hooked up. Exactly. Um, okay, so let's see. So let's talk a little bit about the actual sort of uh, com computational <laughs> and systems architecture that's happening behind the mm -hmm. scenes. Um, so I guess everything is happening these days with uh, Lambda triggers that yeah. are being periodically scheduled. Do you want yeah. to talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, sure. So essentially the building already has a system um, that collects uh, the sensor data. It's stored somewhere, but it does provide us with an API. So there's an REST API. So we use a Lambda to actually uh, retrieve the data from mm -hmm. that system. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's once a day or once a night. Once, once a night. night. Yeah, yeah. Once a night, we essentially you know pull that data in into a S3 bucket. Mm -hmm. um, yes, and then you know you, you can we essentially just rename them. Right, as, right. As so so the lambda yeah. the lambda function yeah. wakes up a P3 yeah. uh, EC2 instance. Yeah, and then the EC2 That's for instance the, training, yeah. the EC2 instance yeah goes through and does all of this yeah. work. When we're developing these uh, ML models, we're using SageMaker and Jupyter Notebooks, which we'll demo here in a little bit. Yeah. But once it's actually time to sort of deploy, you just take, you strip the code out from the notebook, you yeah. make it into a Python file, yeah. you put it in a P3 yeah. instance, yeah. and you have the Lambda wake it up periodically to do batch processing. That's right. There's a lot of there's different ways you can, uh, you know, host the actual, uh, uh, you know, the inference, which is um, how you actually, you know, run build a model, how you actually run through the model mm -hmm. to look at there is an anomaly. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, SageMaker itself has a hosting endpoint service. That's right. Um, but, um, and it provides you with different type of instances. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we can also talk about, you know, some of the newer uh, elastic inference stuff that we that's just right, put that's out. Right. Yeah, no, there's, yeah. this is still fairly early days yeah. with this project and uh, it, the final chapter hasn't been written neither on the research side nor on the sort of architectural implementation side. So, you know, we're just trying to put all of the building blocks together in a meaningful way, but then how we choose to execute them ultimately will depend on, you know, 
what the folks who, yeah, are, who may, are serving. It may change, yeah. and it also depends on, it depends on a lot of different things, right? Mm -hmm. For example, the cost, mm -hmm. the size of the model, right. uh, and also the convenience, how much time you actually have to. That's right, that's right. And who would be maintaining the system. Exactly, yeah. Um, and also how often the, uh, the, the model need to be uh, re updated. Uh, updated, not just retrained, but also right, right. updated. If mm -hmm. there's like new sensors coming online, there's a, right. and also the level of expertise that people have. So the ultimately, right. your right. architecture is dependent on that. But here is actually a yeah. Know, a let's reference. talk. Let's yeah. really quickly talk through the steps that the yeah. sort of the data takes as it's uh, being processed for training. So. Uh, you know, as Wenming was saying, we uh, currently are using, uh, for, for training actually, uh, we, we do the training once every week. And currently the way it works is uh, we query the entire year of 2018 to date uh, in a single query. And we use that query to, uh, well, first of all, we use it for numerous things, but we need to pre-process it. So we resample everything to 15 yeah. minute intervals. We compute scaling statistics on every uh, sensor category. We focus on only on the weekdays, and we sort of trim and extend the sliding windows to make them all fit the sort if of. If there's a missing value to it. That's right. So you know, one thing I want to also emphasize is in the machine learning and uh, in the process, um, the first part is uh, understanding the business problem. The second part is really data selection. Uh, the data selection and cleaning up the data took, I would say, usually 90% of the time. Um, so in this case, it's probably like more like 80. Um, um, percent of the time, and then you would actually go uh, build the models uh, themselves. So in this case, there's the data itself is relatively clean because they are uh, relatively, I would say. Yeah, the um, data is clean, yeah. but but it's more about like figuring out how to normalizing normalize it, it how to properly yeah. scale things, scale. how to like you know fix the missing samples. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we needed to look at weekdays separately, yeah. just all of the data exploration and data wrangling is totally the majority of a data scientist's work, right? Um, exactly. And yeah, and so then once we have gone through this entire process of uh, pre-processing this data, and this is, by the way, happening for each zone, right? Yeah. E each of the zones we described. So, so there's four, four models, zones. Yeah, yeah, four zones. And each zone is going to have five models inside of it for a total of 20 models. 20 total. Models. Yeah. And so, you know, you query all the sensors in a zone, you process all of the sensors yeah. in a zone, then you build models up to five models, one for CO2, one for temperature, one for uh, dew, uh, dew point, one for relative humidity, one for instantaneous light. And for each of those sensors, you're essentially uh, you know, setting some parameters, uh, but ultimately you know, these things are not too critical. We, we, can, we can talk about them offline potentially. If, if yeah. folks are curious, please yeah. ping us. Um, but you need to define the characteristics of the network that you're building. And ultimately, this network does around 50 epochs of training of passing through this entire data set yeah. as it's tuning itself. Yeah. And then finally, when the model is trained, it saves itself and converts it to this intermediary representation, this onyx uh, format, format, which can be- Open neural yeah, exchange format. Yeah. That's right, open neural exchange, which can be consumed by pretty much any deep learning framework. Yeah. Um, and in our case, ultimately, it ends up being consumed by MXNet. Um, and so, here, uh, we end up doing an evaluation stage where uh, we take the trained model that we just built on all of this data for the past year, yeah. and now we ask it to go through and produce its predictions and look at the reconstruction error for the entire year. And using that reconstruction error, we can come up with statistics about it. So we figure out the mean and the standard deviation of the reconstruction error. And that's going to be critical for us in order to be able to figure out when things are happening that are really unexplainable. Yeah, essentially you're setting, you're using that to set the actual 
threshold right. when it comes to standard deviation after the reconstruction error. That's right. It's kind of like figuring at, yeah. out what the tolerable amount of yeah. surprising stuff is That's so right. that you and can figure out when anomalies are happening. In that particular phase, we usually involve the domain specialist. Um, in the next, this case, uh, the case, it's going to be Ben and Claire. They're going right. to tell us, hey, you know, we think this is an anomaly. That was. So using that knowledge, uh, so in, in essence, this is a, a semi-supervised learning. It, it yeah. eventually ends yeah. up there, right, right. Um, yeah, and so once all of this, you know, goodness is all done, everything gets stored in S3 in sort of a zip representation, and each zip has all of these things that we computed along the way, the uh, train model parameters, the time sequence yeah. for which it was queried, the scaling statistics for each sensor group, the neural network architecture, uh, and so on and so forth. And, you know, this essentially is, uh, again, running on a P3 instance these days with, uh, we're actually paralyzing the training part. Yeah. So you, each GPU is training one zone. Um, yeah, it's a task parallelism rather than. That's right, that's um, right. Yeah. Uh, did you have anything to add? Yeah, so actually we want to talk more about the new announcement we just made. Uh, oh, sure. We have a, a P3DN, and uh, uh, the P3 is the um, NVIDIA Volta processor, which is capable of doing 120 terabytes flops worth of computing. Um, that right. is a lot more, that's hundreds of times more powerful than a regular CPU when it comes to this type of workload. Mm -hmm. um, and also for the 8x, you're you know, really looking at having eight GPUs in a box um, with uh, NVLink connected, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. fast interconnect. So um, we, our new announcement is really the DN, a P3DN, which stands for doubling the amount of memory than the original P3 instances. That's right. Now it has 32 gig mm -hmm. um, and also has much faster networking, That's right, 100, gig. 100 gigs. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so for a lot of people, this would be very helpful because yeah, you're trying to- Yeah, this is amazing. Yeah, you yeah. can do multi-node training. You now. have a yeah. very fast, powerful processor, but you certainly also want that data pipeline to be That's right. um, wide so that you can pull in the data to absolutely, do the training. Absolutely, absolutely. And actually, NVIDIA just uh, announced our RAPIDS product, which is meant to accelerate, uh, GPU accelerate all of sort of traditional yeah. scikit-learn and Pandas-style uh, data processing. Yeah. So that the, the new instances are going to be perfect for it. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about what happens now that we have trained the model. Uh, the next thing that happens is essentially the inference architecture. And there's many ways you could deploy this. You could deploy this in sort of a real-time way where you could run inference every 15 minutes when a new sample comes in. Mm -hmm. Or you could do it the way we've been doing it, which is to do daily batches at midnight. Yeah. Um, and so essentially here, we pull in the trained model, which is this you know, zip file that's got all, all yeah. the stuff that we previously computed. And again, for each zone, we go through and we do the same thing. We just do the pre-processing yeah. steps, except now we're not computing the scale statistics, but rather we're applying them from the pre-computed yeah. values. Uh, and here, we're now you know, just looking at this, once this data is pre-processed, we can just yeah. send it through the model and see what its reconstructions are. And we're comparing those reconstruction statistics to the, the ones that we looked at when we built up our yeah. really long query over the span of a year. Anytime that the reconstruction is uh, in what we consider to be the yellow or red uh, region, which is more than three standard deviations away from the mean yeah. and then more than six standard deviations away from the mean, that's when we start to consider potentially escalating to you know a human. That's right. And at the end of the day, the most important is whether that particular signal is actionable. That's right, um, that's right. And so that's why we're very conservative yeah. with what we consider to be the red here, uh, right. which is six standard deviations away, which is- That's 99.9. No, no, that's a um, lot of yeah, nines. Yeah. yeah, lots of nines in yeah. there. Um, one of the other things I want to uh, point out here is um, the inference architecture uh, we're talking about here 
Um, inference actually just means that once you have the model trained, mm -hmm. um, you're doing the prediction or That's you're right. doing the classification, scoring. the scoring yeah. Yeah. Uh, of whether there is knowledge. In this, in this particular case, you're really scoring, uh, you, you, you end up having just you know, a number that we'll look at, whether that's you know, out of the standard, de right. standard deviation. So the inference can be done um, on, uh, you know, hosted using, like I said, SageMaker has a hosting option, which you can just simply use. Um, it can stand up a CPU instances or a GPU instances. So for what, we, for what we are doing here, a CPU is probably sufficient. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to images, you might have to consider having a GPU-like instance. So today we actually announced uh, Elastic Inference, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, EC2 instances. So the idea is that you can rent a fraction of a GPU. So if you're not going to use the 125 you know, teraflops worth of power <laughs> um, to constantly doing these kind of predictions, you could actually rent a smaller one. So the smallest instance is eight. Uh, I think it's uh, one teraflop. Um, one teraflop, 32, 32, 32 bit, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's probably one sixteenth of uh, the cost um, uh, uh, of the uh, a size of a, a regular GPU. Right, right. So essentially, you rent a smaller piece, and then um, if your inference is not a heavy load, you could essentially paying just a uh, ten twenty cents for that's right, that's these right. things, rather than paying you know for the full unit, which is three three dollars. I think it's that's three, right. Three that's right. Yeah, yeah. So elastic inference yeah. would be a great uh, architecture to use exactly. with this. Once you've trained your models and yeah. now you're streaming small pieces of data through, it's a good, yeah. good thing to use for that. Another thing about inference is that it's very uh, scalable horizontally as well. So mm -hmm. let's just say I have 20 models. Mm -hmm. So each of them, I could host you know, multiple models on one instance. Yes. I could also, um, I could also host them Across, let's just say I could rent, you know, 20, 20 of these uh, P3s that have really heavy workload. Right, right. And if I want to scale up even further, I could. Essentially, they're you know more or less um, very horizontally. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, for inferences. That's right. And also, I want to emphasize the fact that uh, um, the majority of the cost. A lot of times, people think about the cost of uh, doing. Uh, machine learning and deep learning is the training. It's actually not quite true because when you do the training, it takes about maybe you know a, a few minutes to a couple of hours. Maybe the longest training for our recent project, which is the shoe game project, mm -hmm. it took about two days and five hours, mm -hmm. and that's you know that's a rare yeah that's exception. rare yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you never go over just a few hours. But if you let's just say you have a website or if you have these really large IoT projects where you have millions of sensors, um, you could potentially save a lot of money. Um, by building the right, you know, inference architecture, and also being able to just scale sure, without sure. having to think Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and as we talk about here, at the, at the towards the end, it, there's also comes a time when you may want to sort of graduate to on the edge devices that are doing the the processing yeah. there, so that you don't have to be constantly sending data around. And especially once you start dealing with Images, things like like yeah. cameras, right. uh, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense to do it on prem. And, and we'll get to that in just a second. Yeah. Sure. Just to sort of close the loop here. Uh, you know, the, up till now, everything has been uh, in the domain of unsupervised learning, and that just yeah. basically means that you're not there. There's no human supervision up to this point. But at the very end of this process, whenever an escalation occurs, whenever we think that something surprising or potentially mm -hmm. anomalous has happened, it gets sent up to uh, our caretakers, to the horticulturalists, uh, and typically this is only for instances of things that are in the red, you know, in yeah. the red domain. Yeah. 
and they're asked to assign a label. Like, was this an anomaly, yes or no? It, things just get sort of added to a backlog for mm -hmm. them, so they don't have to do it in real time. Yeah. Uh, and then, I, in addition to that, they can assign an outcome to it. Like, what kind of an anomaly yeah. was it? Yeah. And this is things that we're going to take and try to build uh, anomaly classifiers so that when anomalies get popped up from this yeah. architecture, this sort of unsupervised architecture, they'll get propagated to a supervised uh, model that will be able to say, okay, I think this is an anomaly, yes. And then what specific type of anomaly do I think it is? Yeah, essentially that it's will, cascading that. Right. Um, Hopefully lead to, to more actionable another, stuff yeah. and interpretability. Yeah. That's right. Um, okay. And so let's try to, we've only got 11 minutes here, yeah. so let's try to move quickly. Yeah. Um, this is just, a, you know, for folks who are curious about how uh, you might be able to trigger something similar, this is how you sort of would design a Lambda function yeah. to wake up your EC2 instance, for example, in this very simple example. Um, You're just spinning up it every night and turn it off. That's right. Um, and you can certainly uh, use an API to call the SageMaker uh, training API directly, but it has to be one of the algorithms. Mm -hmm. But let's just say you know our stuff is like uh, custom. Right. Um, one of the easier easiest ways to do it is to just spin up an uh, EC2 instance. So in here. Um, the way it works is that you create a Lambda function, and then you create uh, uh, an event in the CloudWatch. Event source, yeah. yeah. event source. So inside CloudWatch, you can select a scheduled event. Um, and then you send it to, uh, to the target Lambda function, and then you suddenly have a very simple uh, kind of a crown job-like right. uh, system. And That's then right. when you want to shut it down, you can have, uh, you know, send it a message to uh, a Lambda instance. function and shut yep. it down. Yeah. Yep, yep. Awesome. Uh, all right, so let's just really quickly do uh, a very brief uh, demo of the of the notebook that yep. uh, we built uh, to show you guys some of this stuff. So uh, let's start maybe just by uh, regenerating this figure so you guys can see that this is actually a live session here. And again, this is just our correlation yep. uh, matrix that's showing yep. the weekday versus weekend behaviors. But let's do something more interesting. So here we're going to actually train a model on the fly. And um, actually, before I do that, let me show you um, just a couple of days of behavior, just so you can get a feel for it, what it looks like when it's all been sort of flattened out. So this is what our samples look like that are being fed into the architecture. Mm -hmm. And the first four of these are the CO2 sensor values. So in blue is one day's worth, then in orange is the next day, and then green is the, is the third day. So these are three different days, and then there's four different sensors of the same type, the CO2 sensors that are in this, I think this happens to be the South Conservatory Zone. Uh, and so after the CO2 sensors, I believe it are the temperature and dew point sensors up here. Uh, and then after those are the relative humidity. Oh no, these are instantaneous light, and Lights, then yeah. and then relative humidity is up here. Yeah. Um, and then we've also got some things like external conditions, like whether it was what the temperature was in Seattle. Uh, and then there's other things too, like uh, I think this is the external humidity. Yeah. And then we have another indicator variable here that just basically shows you what hour of the day it was. Yeah. Uh, and whether or not it was, you know, what day of the week it was. Yeah, essentially, this is the input for the autoencoder, <coughs> where you're right. kind of concatenating all the stuff together, That's right. and you're passing it through the That's neural right. net. And yeah. typically, the autoencoder would only see a single one of these. And yeah. I'm just showing you three, just so you can see the diversity over multiple days. So this is what the kind of thing that the autoencoder would be getting as input. Yeah. Um, and so uh, now let's actually build and train a model. Uh, and you guys can actually see the training happen in real time here. 
Okay, and so here is the definition of our architecture. So in this particular case, we're getting in two, uh, 2016 features because we've mm -hmm. discarded some of them for the purposes of sort of throwing away things that are negatively correlated with this particular experiment. Yep. And this happens to be a CO2 targeting model. So this model is trying to learn how to uh, look at all of the data, but then only really reconstruct the pieces that belong to the CO2 sensors. So it has a chance to learn from all of the sensors, but yeah. it's only accountable for reproducing the That's CO2. Right. Uh, and so its architecture is sort of ingesting 2016 samples, then it's sort of doing a kind of a funky thing for an autoencoder. So it's starting out fairly wide, yeah. then it's going even wider to yeah. give it a chance to learn from all of these interesting the relationships. relationships. Yeah. And then it's uh, sort of repeating that for one more stack, so it's wide, wide, and then original size, and then really narrow, and then yeah. reconstructed. That's right. Um, so you, yeah, there's many variations you can play with. This is one that uh, yeah. seems to be doing quite well. And that's essentially the job of a data scientist, which you're actually. And it just know, finished training, yeah. by the way. Yeah, great. That's really <laughs> fast. Yeah. So let's let's take a look at some of its outputs here on a couple of days. Um, okay. Okay. So here are just randomly sampled days from the data. Yeah. And you yep. can see that it's basically getting really good at reconstructing the CO2 sensor behavior. So in blue yeah. is the original data, and in red is the reconstruction. Um, but we, we have no anomaly here. There's, yeah, there's no anomaly yeah. here. But all of the other sensors were basically not uh, accountable yeah. for in the reconstruction, but they were potentially used to build the reconstruction just for the CO2 sensors. Right. We're including that relationship, but we're not using it. And here That's you're just right. masking it out. That's right. And you can just see yeah. that it's actually gotten fairly good at reconstruction because there's different kinds of behaviors that are going yeah. in here, and it's, it's able to map most of them. Yeah. Um, so I think you know, beyond that, uh, you know, you know, these notebooks we're happy to share with folks who are interested, yeah. but we'll sort of pause there and come back and try to you know, wrap up just because I know we're getting tight on time. Yeah. From a results perspective, what we just showed you sort of consistent with uh, what we're yeah. seeing for different kinds of sensor groups. I'll make a big. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, we're, we're getting one of the, the only indicators that you have as a data scientist when you're working with unsupervised problems is, it's certainly in the context of autoencoders, is are you able to get good sample reconstructions? Because yeah. if so, then that means that the autoencoder has learned something. Yeah. And when we inject, uh, anomalies into these reconstructions artificially, they also throw up really high reconstruction errors, which is good. It means it's working well. Yeah. And then, you know, they're actually starting to find things for us. Like, this is one of the things they found, which was um, uh, apparently, you know, so this is something that came out of the system, and then we, we escalated it to Ben and asked him about it. And he said, you know, nice catch. We, we altered the climate to encourage the blooming of our Amorphous titanium plant. Yeah. The corpse flower, as yeah, it's also corpse known, flower, is accustomed right. to warmer temperatures and higher humidity than the normal sphere's operating parameters, which is incredible because yeah. they're already trying to sort of maintain the like microclimate of Costa Rica. This plant apparently needs even more humidity yeah. and like I don't yeah. know. But in any case, uh, the system seems to be already producing some fairly interesting and fruitful results, yeah. uh, and we look forward to you know improving it and working with the caretakers to to help them further. Yeah. And you know, once again, this really shows that it's uh, the the machine learning model is building trust with the caretaker, which right. would make your system much more have a much better user experience. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you want to talk a little bit more about feature work? Yes. So um, there's a um, we're just actually starting to work on this. So at the very uh, at the very beginning. Uh, we actually wanted to do um, having having uh, camera imaging for the living wall. Uh, what turns out to be uh, fairly difficult is that um, images are 
uh, just you know, plain cameras um, don't necessarily review um, a lot of the interesting things that are happening with the uh, plant. So it turned out that uh, there are these type of um, you know, multispectral imaging that can actually catch uh, diseases of the uh, uh, well, plant stress. Of the plant, yeah. plant stress. Um, it actually show different colors that it would be much more useful than the traditional just like a GoPro. RGB, we actually yep. try to use yep. a RGB uh, uh, system. So another piece which I want to talk about which is edge processing. So um, we talked about you know, doing that inference or that you know, evaluation um, in the cloud. Um, but if you have an area where it's remote, let's just say we're in a greenhouse, there's no internet connectivity. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if you're in a desert somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so there That's are, where I love to grow my plants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, you would probably have to have uh, uh, devices or um, I would say hardware that's powerful enough to be able to do that type of inference, mm -hmm. especially for images. Um, so to give you an example, um, I ran image um, inference on object detection on a Raspberry Pi. It took about 201 seconds to interpret one frame. This was YOLO, right? Yeah, this like was that. YOLO, yeah. Yeah, YOLO model we did. And then we tried it on one of the more powerful machines on an ARM processor. Uh, took, I don't know, uh, 30 seconds or so. And then on the GPU, this is actually a TX2. a TX2, which is $200 little GPU device. Size of a credit card. Um, size of a credit card. It's able to do that at three frames per second, which is actually it's a 0 .3, 0 0.3 second to actually do that interpretation. It just tells you that GPUs are absolutely necessary for uh, any type of image, uh, you know, machine learning image processing. That's right. Um, another part which we want to talk about is that a lot of these edge devices are relatively um, weak in terms of power when you compare it to the machines in the cloud. So for example, I'll give you an example, this uh, TX2 is capable of doing about one teraflops. Um, yeah, it's about- Is it one teraflop? Uh, uh, yeah, one teraflop. Okay. And then the, uh, uh, your laptop probably have a you know, 1060 GPU. Right, right. It's capable of about four. I have the same mm -hmm, laptop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then if you look at uh, the one we have in the cloud, the P P3 right. has 125 teraflops. That's it, with um, tensor cores only. With tensor yeah, cores, yeah, yeah. a yeah. theoretical throughput, yeah, yeah. right? So it just tells you that you know, the, uh, these models have to actually, you know, if you want to fit these models into these edge devices, there's going to be some work that's involved. So part of it is something called TensorRT, which is the optimization engine which NVIDIA provides uh, for you to uh, take an, a model that you train. It's actually taking that graph and optimize it. Yep. The reason yep. is because when you're doing training, you have to do forward propagation through the numbers, through the system, and then you look at the error of your model and the actual label data, and then you, can, you have to do the back Propagate propagation. Gradients um, or gra little error yeah. corrections that need very high precision. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so in that case, if we're doing inference, you're only actually doing just a passing through. That's right. Uh, so inference is training. once yeah. the training has been done, been done, and there's only forward passes happening, That's which, right. especially in the context of images, we're finding that you can reduce a lot of the precision, exactly. but not lose accuracy. That's so right. we can throw away, you know, instead of having to represent like the pixel value colors as 64-bit floats, we can actually represent them as 16-bit, as 8-bit um, integers, yeah. even, yeah. That's right. And not lose precision and accuracy. Um, there are uh, there are even you know you can even go st a step further by fusing the layers together, right. removing layers, some of the right, right. And, uh, and it also actually does sort of it yeah. launches mini experiments trying yeah. to figure out what matrix multiplication kernel sizes are optimal for your problem. Right. So it does a lot of great stuff for you behind the scenes. So TensorRT does that for you. Yep. Essentially, yep. all you have to do is we have to take the Onyx format and feed it through. That's right. Then it can build a very tight model that can fit in these edge devices as yep. well as your 
uh, your uh, uh, deployment in the cloud. So exactly, definitely look exactly. at TensorIT. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Great, and so I think, you know, uh, if you guys have any questions, uh, please feel free to follow up with us here are our emails. Uh, and thank you so much for your attendance. Yeah, thank you very much, and we look forward to maybe another session in the future. Yeah, Thanks. take care.